sung so far a running theme of God's wisdom, which also relates to the salmon text this morning, and our first reading from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 1 verses 1 to 7. Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behaviour, righteousness, justice and equity. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Would you also turn please to James chapter 1. We continue with our series on the book of James, and the text for the sermon today is verses 5 to 8, but I'll read the first eight verses. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now our text. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Covenant people of God, our text deals with wisdom and how we get it. And that's something that ought to be of some interest to people in general, to the average man on the street, the getting of wisdom. Because most people, I think, would see an increase in wisdom as a desirable thing. Very few like to be told that they or what they have done is unwise, which is a polite way of saying it's foolish. Most would also realise, I suspect, that wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge or intelligence. As an old saying goes, if any man lacks knowledge, let him go to college. However, I think most of us are aware that sometimes going to college seems to have exactly the opposite effect, far from increasing wisdom. It sometimes seems that at least some of the courses that people do or the company they hang around with results in a loss of wisdom, a decrease in wisdom. 
So knowledge and intelligence and an increase in that through college or otherwise are not the same thing as wisdom. Most people sense, I think, that wisdom is something that comes from greater experience in life. Most people would see it that way. We, however, as the Lord's people, base our view of wisdom on what the Bible has to say about it. And the biblical view of wisdom is something that is not anywhere near so attractive to the average man on the street. We look at that biblical view under two headings. First of all, those who get wisdom. And secondly, those who do not get wisdom. Those who get it and those who don't. In the first place then, it's good for us to know exactly what it is, what wisdom is from a biblical point of view. And I think one of the best passages in the Bible you can go to to find out what wisdom is, is the one we read as our first reading from Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7. Proverbs 1, which is of course part of the Old Testament wisdom literature, Proverbs 1 takes virtually every word from the Hebrew language that has to do with wisdom, each with its own shade of meaning, and packs them all into those seven verses at the start of a book that is giving training and wisdom. So it's uh, quite understandable that you get in those, those uh, introductory verses a picture of what wisdom actually is. And according to Proverbs 1 verses 1 to 7, you can reduce the idea of wisdom to the following components. First of all, wisdom includes instruction or the receiving of instruction. That's the principle, uh, the giving of the principles that tell us how to live. The uh, theory, if you like. But wisdom also, and the words that are used here imply this, wisdom also includes the application of those principles. You see, it's no good knowing the principles, knowing the truth, if you don't apply it to your life. A wise man not only knows what he should do, he actually applies it to his life and the lives of others as well. And he does so with discernment. That's another wisdom word. Uh, Discernment means when you've got various choices, you can weigh them up and choose the best, the right or the best one. And he does so with prudence, another wisdom word, that means uh, that he knows what, uh, what the dangers are that lie around him and he makes the choice also, the right choices, in view of those dangers. He's aware of God's warnings. Now, according to the New Testament, we find all of that, the wisdom of God, uh, it is found most, uh, most of all, and in perfect measure in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the wisdom of God himself, as 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us. All of that true instruction in principle, uh, all of that application of principle to life, all of that discernment between the choices and being aware of the dangers and so on, all of that is only found... And it is only perfectly summed up in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this kind of wisdom that is necessary if you and I are going to be able to live life according to what we read already in James 1 verses 2 to 4. We looked at that last week. 
in order for us to be able to see life uh, with all of its trials and its temptations, the way James told us in verses 2 to 4, to do that, we need this very wisdom that Proverbs 1 talks about. If you want to be able to see everything that happens to you as joy, including the the trials and temptations... If you want to be able to view the temptations that come to you as testings from God, if you want to be uh, after endurance, if you want to be moving towards that completion, that perfection, lacking in nothing, if you want that, then you need God's wisdom. We need also to be able to see life properly in this way, in this wise way, if we are to be able to make good choices throughout our life. And this is something, this wisdom is something that all believers need. Sure, one day we'll be perfect. One day we will be complete and lacking in nothing. But that day is not yet. That day has not arrived yet. At this present time, we desperately need wisdom and we need it more than, more than any time. We need it at the time we're facing trials and temptations. Uh, those things are the biggest uh, challenges in life. The biggest challenges to wisdom are trials and temptations. That's precisely at those times uh, when we are facing trial or temptation that we are going to be most tempted to think of life as being pointless when we look at the sufferings that come to our way and we think to ourselves, this is pointless, there's no purpose in it. Why does God put me through this? I can't see a single reason. There is no reason. We need wisdom to cope with that. In such situations, I'm sure you've found this too for yourself, it's in those kind of situations that we find that we do all lack wisdom. To some degree we lack it. And uh, these are the times we most need it the times that show up uh, lack of wisdom most clearly. Now with those things in mind, perhaps we can begin to understand the flow of James's thought in this first chapter. You read this chapter and perhaps you think, well, it's kind of disjointed. First he's talking about trials and temptations. Then he's talking about wisdom and prayer. Then he's talking about the rich and the poor. He seems to be all over the place just throwing things in randomly. That's not the case. But now we begin perhaps to see what the flow of thought is here. And the gist of it is this. James is telling us, you need to know how to deal with trials and temptations or testings, if you like, in your life. If you want to mature in the Christian faith, you need to deal with those things. Sure, eventually you will be complete, lacking in nothing, verses 2 to 4. But in the meantime, for the present time, you need the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God is the very thing that is lacking in the natural man. And it's lacking in you to some degree as well. Verses 5 to 8. And therefore, you've got to ask God for it, for that wisdom. You know, often uh, verses 5 to 8 are taken as a kind of uh, general call. Uh, The congregation, God's people, we we all look at ourselves and some of us are wise and some of us are not so wise. And those who are not so wise can ask God and he'll give them the gift of wisdom. A a kind of a general uh, approach 
that leaves it open. If you think you need wisdom, you can ask for it. And uh, perhaps if not, well, you don't need to worry so much about it. But this passage actually comes in the context of wisdom, especially for dealing with trials and temptations. And it is a call to all of us to seek wisdom for that because we all need it. How then do we get it? How do we get that wisdom? Three essentials. We need Christ. We need also the word of Christ. And we need prayer. Those are the three things you need for wisdom. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. So you are simply not going to receive wisdom if you do not receive Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the only source of wisdom. He is the one who has, as it were, cornered the wisdom market and you will not find it anywhere else. Second, wisdom comes through the Word of Christ, through the Bible. The Scripture gives us instruction, it gives us the principles, it gives us specific commandments that are the foundation of wisdom that tell us how God wants us to live and how it's good for us to live in this world, in this life. But it's not only the commands, it's also the promises. The promises of the Scripture are also vital for the getting of wisdom. The promises of God are that which tell us that God has indeed given to us the privilege of being able to ask for wisdom. Take, for example, I'm going to mention a few of these from several verses in the New Testament. And I want you to note as I read through these just how gracious these promises are. And they are made this way so that we as God's people, when we hear them, will be all the more encouraged to ask for these things. We see the promises that are so gracious, they are designed to help us to come freely to ask for that which God promises. Matthew 7, verse 7 forward. Ask and it will be given you. Mark 11.24, if I can sum it up, pray, ask and believe and it will be granted. John 14 verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. John 15 verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 16.23, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. In other words, anything that you ask for that is lawful, that is good, and that is according to the scripture and to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that stands for, any of those things you ask for and God will give them freely. Doesn't mean we get everything we want, we ask for the wrong things. But everything we ask that is good and right and necessary for God's people, like wisdom, God will surely give it. Hear these promises. And James 1 verse 5 is cast in similar terms in order to encourage us to ask the promise being made in such generous terms. We read, for example, God gives to all generously and without reproach. Literally, when it says God gives, it literally says 
God is the giving God. That's his name here. That's his nature. He is the giving God. And the giving God, who, according to his nature, is the one who always gives to all who ask, who ask in the Lord Jesus Christ and according to his will. The giving God is a God who gives generously. Uh, Literally, the word means single-mindedly. God gives with a single-minded determination. He is determined to give to his people and will let nothing stand in the way. He gives uh, undividedly, it means, uh, without any unworthy ulterior motives, without regrets, without second thoughts, without secret resentments. In other words, his giving is not like the giving of men, who very often uh, give, if they give at all, more along the lines of a uh, a scrooge with uh, resentment and with second thoughts. And he gives without reproach. In other words, he gives without using the gift as an opportunity to have a go at us. That's not the way God gives. He doesn't come to us with his gifts reminding us, well, I don't uh, really want to give this to you because you don't deserve it and you're probably not going to use the gift in the right way anyway, true as that might be. He doesn't come to us uh, as men often do. Once again, you know, people often give gifts and you get the feeling that what they're really thinking if they don't say it is uh, you don't really deserve this, but since I'm feeling so generous today, oh, and by the way, might I take the opportunity to remind you that you need to have a piece of my mind. The way sometimes people do give us things and they're not going to let us forget it either, uh, that they have given us something with those kind of strings attached. No, God, when he gives to his people, just gives. And this includes also the gift of wisdom. God gives us the gift of wisdom so freely because he wants his people to mature. And knowing this, knowing these things about the giving God and the way he gives, we're told this so that it becomes all the more easy for us, with his grace, to ask him for these things. This asking is the other important ingredient that we talked about, the third one, prayer. Let him ask, that is a reference to prayer, indeed it is a command to pray. Now the Lord could of course just give wisdom automatically to all his children without requiring us to pray for it. And to an extent he does. Every time you read the Bible... Uh, by God's grace, it will increase your maturity. That's what the Bible does. Even if we forget to ask God for wisdom as we read the Bible, still reading the Bible by His grace will increase our wisdom. But the Lord wants us to ask for wisdom and for other things to demonstrate that we do believe His promise. We've heard the promise. He will give wisdom freely when we ask Him for wisdom We're showing that we believe that promise. We're demonstrating that. We are demonstrating also our awareness as to how dependent we are upon him. We ask him for wisdom because we can't get it for ourselves. We can't get it from the university or the college. So we need to go to God for it. And prayer demonstrates that dependency. 
And we need also to pray for these things, including wisdom, because this is also a way of expressing our gratitude to God for giving these things. And uh, that's uh, something along the lines of the reason why parents teach their children to say please, even for things that they're going to give their children anyway. To teach them that sense of dependency, gratitude, not to mention politeness. It is also possible that when you pray to the Lord for wisdom, that he will give you greater wisdom that he will bless that request for wisdom and give you more wisdom as you are obedient to his command, the command to pray for wisdom. But this asking must, of course, be in faith. It must arise from faith, arise out of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only source of wisdom, or forget it. It must reflect Faith in the sense of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than coming out of very settled doubts and unbelief. And they must, this request must be consistent with the faith. It must serve the faith, that is, serve the scripture. If you pray, for example, that God will give you wisdom so that you'll be able to gamble more effectively, this is hardly going to be a praying in faith. God is single-minded, we have been told here. He is single-minded in his giving. And he wants us to respond to that with single-mindedness in asking. Single-mindedness in dependency upon him. Resulting in a single-minded gratitude and obedience to him. Hebrews 11 verse 6 kind of sums it up. And without faith... It is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. However, in the second and final place, there are those who don't ask in this way. They are those who will never acquire true biblical wisdom. We are told this in order that we should be sufficiently warned so that we ourselves don't miss out on the wisdom that God offers or his other good gifts. Because those who miss out are not only rank unbelievers, but also the hypocrite and the doubter within the church. Let's consider this uh, doubter for a moment and what the scripture here says about him. And I want to make it clear at this point that the doubter, as this term is used here in James, the doubter is not the Christian who sometimes wonders whether he's on the right track, wonders that about himself. Um, I've got a, a reasonably good head for directions and for navigating. But I have to admit that sometimes, even when I'm going the right way, I find myself suddenly thinking, oh, did I take a wrong turn? For some reason, I suddenly get a little confused and think, uh, well, I thought I was going in the right way, but perhaps I I took a wrong turn back there. Usually things sort themselves out uh, not long after that, but sometimes I do have those thoughts, and perhaps you you do too. 
But you see, there is a big difference between a Christian who is going in the right direction, but sometimes questions himself and wonders those kind of things. There's a big difference between that and one who is truly torn between two opposing directions. The doubting one of verses 6 to 8 is the latter kind of person, the one who is torn between two opposing directions. What is in doubt with the doubter of verses 6 to 8 is not whether he's going in the right direction after all. What is in doubt with him is whether he really wants to go in God's direction. Whether he really wants to go in the direction of wisdom, whether he really wants the wisdom of God at all. And that, of course, is a serious challenge to faith. You see, this person described in verses 6 to 8, this doubter, he is one who has enough knowledge of the scripture to know very well that the wisdom of God is a very, very demanding thing. The wisdom of God demands, it requires sacrifice and struggle. And the person who is not committed to the Lord looks at that and he says, well, I'm not sure I really want that. That's just a little bit too difficult for me. This person is described as double-minded. Literally in the Greek it reads double-souled. He's a double-souled man. It's, uh, it's that fundamental to who he is. Uh, in other words, he is a man who is not reflecting God's single-mindedness and being single-minded in his response to God. He's a man who is torn and who wants to go in two directions. His soul is torn between believing and not believing, between faith and the world, between the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the world, and the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness to God. He is, uh, you might say, a fence-sitter who never really settles on the faith, the way of faith. And he alternates between the inclination to go one way and the inclination to go the other way. He's trying to serve two masters. Every now and again you see this kind of thing with young people, sometimes with older ones in the church. Those who, they sort of try to live as Christians, but they can never quite commit to it fully. They keep responding to the pull of the world, going in that direction for a bit, then they regret it and they pull back for a bit. But then they're attracted again and off they go again with something else. That's the kind of thing that James is talking about and warning about. The result of this kind of indecision, it's really a lack of commitment, it's a lack of faith. And the result of it, one of the results, is a great instability in life. James says such people are actually unstable in all their ways. And he compares them to waves or to surf of the sea in a storm, driven and tossed by currents and by fierce winds, so that they are all over the place. Uh, as one writer put it, these people are like a cork on a stormy sea. You can imagine that going up and down and hither and thither all over the place. And this is especially so, it, it, the truth about people comes out very often 
when they go through the storms of life, the trials and the temptations. If they have faith, there is a strong tendency to hold on a steady course even through the storm. When they are double-minded, they're all over the place in those circumstances. One moment you hear from their lips pious statements about their suffering. The next moment you see uh, flashes of despair or of anger or of depression. And I hasten to add that depression can have many causes, but sometimes it is a spiritual problem and it is a response to this or a symptom of this double-mindedness and also disobedience. Now we may all know moments of these kind of responses. Responses to trials, to stress and to temptation and so on. But if these things characterise you, if you characteristically respond under pressure, under trials, under stress, under temptation, if characteristically you are all over the place with these things, then you do have a faith problem. The problem arises when we are not in a secure relationship with the Lord. You see, you need to be right with the Lord in order to handle life properly. If you are not secure with the Lord, you will not be secure at all. And especially not when you're undergoing trials and temptations. Security in the Lord, on the other hand, proves itself. It demonstrates itself. And it does so first in prayer. In responding to that command, let him ask. And when that prayer is sincere, God answers it and he gives the wisdom that is necessary to deal with trials and temptations. And that wisdom that he gives unifies the personality. We're not double-minded, it unifies us to make us single-minded in our service to God. Resulting in a steady course in a stable life, even amidst storms. The outward circumstances may be raging, but our response to them, the response of faith, holds steady on course. In addition to instability, there's another consequence that comes of double-mindedness, and that is ineffective prayer. James warns that if you are double-minded... Don't expect that you will receive anything from God, anything good at all. When you pray, when you ask for wisdom or whatever else it may be, says James, if you're double-minded, don't expect that God will listen to your prayer. No gift of special grace will come to you. The Lord simply will not hear your prayer at all. Because the person who is described here as double-minded, he has no solid relationship with Jesus Christ. And without that, God will not receive his prayers, will not receive his request for wisdom, and will not receive his request for any other gift of special grace. If you find your prayers are ineffective, could be sometimes because we're asking for the wrong things, But if we find our prayers are ineffective, that even when we ask for the things that God has promised, the things he's told us that all Christians need, 
And we pray and we pray for those things and we don't get them. If we find that, then it's worth examining ourselves to see if the underlying problem might not be double-mindedness. You know, some say that death and taxes are the only certain things in life, but they're not. There's a whole heap of things that are certain in life because they're promised in the Scripture. But one of the things that Scripture does indicate also is that trials and temptations are certain in this life for the Christian. Trials and testings, if you prefer. And I say this especially for the young people in the congregation. You can be absolutely sure that if you live you will experience these things. There will be setbacks. There will be losses. They may be financial struggles. They may be educational struggles. Some of you already know what those are. They may be struggles with friends deserting. Maybe there will be illness. And eventually, if you live long enough, you will see death. Not only your own, but also of other loved ones. You can also be sure there will be temptations. Lust, anger, coveting, the temptation to form relationships with unbelievers. Now you can either handle those things in a steady way, in a stable way, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the way of wisdom, or... You can be like a cork tossed on a, on a stormy sea. You can either deal with those things by means of prayer, a prayer to which God listens, or a prayer from which God turns away. And the contrast between those two ways, those two ways of life, is as great now as it has ever been in history. Because right at this time, it's really always been the case, but it's certainly very evident now. At this time, without the Lord Jesus Christ, there is absolutely nothing out there that can prepare you or help you through life's crises. Unbelievers are completely on their own. And that is a very, very lonely place to be, especially during a storm. So it's that, or it's the God who gives generously to all and without reproach in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask for the gift of wisdom especially so that we can deal with trials and temptations and uh, so that we can also see them according to your purposes, so that we may resist temptation and so that we may grow in maturity through these things. Father, to this end, enable us to look to the one who is the wisdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, enable us to study your word and what it says about such things and drive us to pray constantly through all these things for your gracious help. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.